0: Well, this morning we're very grateful for our, uh, our uh, student uh, ministries, Minister of Student ministry Stephen Dewey. This uh, past week I went to jury duty and so asked him if he could uh, fill the pulpit this Sunday and always happy to hear him open the Word of God. So, Stephen. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Morning, <clears throat> comfort, O oh comfort my people. This is the opening line of our text this morning. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll be considering this incredible text, a marvelous text, one that I that I love, and I, I know you're familiar at least with one or two verses in it. And it begins with the words, "Comfort, O oh comfort my people." Elsewhere in biblical Hebrew, this word comfort is used to speak of the compassion expressed to someone grieving over the death of a family member. There's a significant trauma that has been experienced, and now God steps in to give comfort. Comfort itself only makes sense against the backdrop of distress or destruction, does it not? Think about it for a moment. If if everything's going just fine for you in peachy keen, what do you need comfort for? God is obviously calling on Isaiah to preach a message of comfort because they were in great need. Now this is part of who our God is. God is a God who comforts those in their affliction. Second Thessalonians two sixteen and seventeen says this about Jesus Christ it says and about God it says Second Thessalonians two sixteen Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father be who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now he's saying that to the Thessalonian church, a church that was being attacked with false teachers, and they were themselves afflicted, as it tells us in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 5. They were under affliction and needed comfort. And that's who our God is. He is a God of comfort. Now, are you afflicted this morning? Are you someone in distress? Perhaps you think, yes, that's me. Praise God for his word because this message is for you. But maybe you're thinking this morning, no, no, not, not really in distress right now. Everything everything's going pretty fine in life. Well, praise God for his word because this message, as you'll see, is also for you. How? Maybe you say, I don't need comfort right now. But, but I beg to differ. If your life is fine right now and you feel no need for comfort, you're either in one of two boats. One of two boats. Boat one, you're oblivious to the danger upon your own soul at this very moment. You don't feel the need for comfort because you don't realize the danger and distress that you are in. And if you're in this boat, it's because you have not forsaken your sins and given your life to the one true and living God. You've never trusted in Christ to save you from your sins. You're complacent in them, trying to outweigh them or to cover them up with good actions. Perhaps you've assuaged your conscience to the thinking, you're not that bad. There are others who are far worse. I'm good enough. You think that God will look upon you at your death and see that you've been pretty good or that you because you've been pretty good and you think you'll get into heaven and so you think you're fine. But if only you were to realize your true position and how your life is balanced on the edge of a knife over an eternal abyss, an abyss called hell. Your sin has broken your relationship with God, and no number of good works can mend this break. God looks to you, sees only your sin, and is storing up his wrath to smite you on the day of judgment. If this is you, you need to get out of your comfort zone real quick. This message can only bring you true comfort, If you heed the call to be saved, then there's boat two. You do not feel the need to be comforted now because you've already found your comfort in God's Son, Jesus Christ. You have cast aside all attempts at earning salvation, at earning righteousness, and have thrust yourself wholly upon Jesus and His work on the cross. Praise God. You feel no need for comfort now because you have complete comfort already. And it's likely there's no circumstances in your life right now that are causing you to remember just how wicked a world we live in and just how much sin affects our lives. But temporal circumstances do often affect us. And that is natural and normal for living in this sinful world. But perhaps there's none of that in your life right now and you are just resting in the peace that comes with being a Christian, with being born again. This message today is also for you because not all days and seasons of life are peaceful. You too will face sufferings in the future, just as you have in the past. So pocket these promises of God from God today and draw upon them when your need comes. Now briefly, before we get to our text, I want to speak again directly to those in the first boat. The truth in this passage will not provide any comfort for you until you surrender and give your life to Jesus. Why? Let me reread verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 40 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. This comfort is only for my people. Whose people? God's. God's people. You need Jesus Christ to get to the Father, to become God's children. John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus bore the wrath that you deserve by dying on that cross, by shedding his blood for you. He made atonement for sin, which brings pardon, forgiveness of sins, and the penalty of eternal death being paid for in him. You, might, you may find comfort in God today, but you must submit to him and give your life to him. And I pray that you will understand this as we look at our passage today. Now, for everyone else, this is a supreme message of comfort. And we see in these 11 verses that because God has atoned for sin and become our shepherd, we may find comfort in him. Because he's atoned for sin, because he has become our shepherd, we may find comfort in him. How do we apply this healing balm to our soul? By believing four promises of God found in our text. So let me read our text and we'll consider these four promises. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11 is our text. Look along with me as I read. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough place let the, excuse me, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, "Call out. Then he answered, "What shall I call out? All flesh is grass." And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Let me pray, and we'll jump into our text. God above, we come before you this morning with open hearts, Lord. Teach us from your word. God, it's not my words, it's yours. May what comes forth be filled with the, the grace and love of your spirit and the spirit of truth, Lord, as, as we look into this text. May it comfort hearts, Lord, and convict hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to see four promises today. We need to believe these four promises of God for our to find our comfort. And promise number one is that God has atoned for sin. We find this in verse 2. God has atoned for sin. Now in the year 597 BC, something horrible happened to the people of Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon successfully attacked the people of the living God. He deposed the king of Israel, took heavy tribute and many artifacts from the temple, and captured a handful of the Jewish nobility as prisoners. He then set on the throne a person of his own choice, a puppet king, essentially, Now, in Israel's case, they must be thinking, how could this possibly happen? How could we be taken over by this king? We're God's chosen people, and yet here we are ransacked and now living under this unlawful king. And yet, the people continued to ignore the fact that God's hand was against them. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied to them, to these people directly, that they were going to be destroyed and taken away from jerusalem because of their sin and yet they would not repent and so 11 years after this conquering of jerusalem nebuchadnezzar's son nebuchadnezzar ii came back what had happened is king zedekiah the puppet king rebelled against babylon he stopped paying them tribute he then allied himself with egypt and so babylon came back and this time they showed no mercy They leveled the city's walls, they destroyed the temple, and they exiled almost all of her people, taking them with to Babylon to be slaves. Most importantly, they destroyed the temple of God. And so came days of captivity, 70 years of exile in an unknown land. And it's in this context that Isaiah preaches a message of comfort. Now you might be thinking, Stephen Isaiah wrote in the year 700, this happened in like the year 580, 590 B.C., Yes, that is true. But look at the context of our book. Let me break down Isaiah for you real briefly here. It's 66 chapters. Chapters 1 through 35 focus on mostly judgment with a tiny bit of blessing, and it focuses on the nation of Assyria, who was presently attacking Israel and Judah in the year around 700. And you've got a historical interlude, chapters 36 and 39, where King Hezekiah is shown faithful to God, and therefore the cities of Judah, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, are able to stave off the Assyrians, and God rescues them. And then beginning right here in chapter 40, verse 1, we have a brand new section that runs all the way to the end of the book, chapter 66. And in that entire section, the Assyrians are only mentioned once, and it's in the past tense. Everything else is focused on Babylon, who at this time, when Isaiah is writing, is not even a part of, of the world scene. They're just a small... Uh, country over there to the east and and so we have this 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 passage in chapter forty through sixty six that's mostly blessing with just a little bit of threat and warning of judgment and the focus is on Babylon. The focus through the whole thing is on Babylon and talks a lot about the exile. And so we have this context Isaiah is writing ahead, projecting ahead and giving a message of comfort to those who would be exiled. It's almost like this book, this, this section of the book, chapters 40 through 66, are like our book of Revelation to us. Right? We look at Revelation as future, almost all of it being coming in the future. From chapter 6 on, at least being future. These people look, would, the Israelites who first received Isaiah, would see this as their revelation of a future coming upon, of future events coming upon them, of war, destruction, and also blessing and comfort from the Lord. And the people would need this because their their trials would be very great. Now, just a brief aside, there are many uh, scholars who like to separate Isaiah into two separate books and saying two different authors wrote it because the tone is so different in the second half than the first half. Obviously, somebody else wrote it, is what they're saying. But ultimately, they, they won't believe that predictive prophecy can be true because this second half of Isaiah has so many fulfilled prophecies that it should shut the mouths of any naysayers of the Christian faith. So many prophecies fulfilled in the second half of this book. And we know because Isaiah, there's no separate author told here. It's still Isaiah. Jesus quotes from the second half of it many times and refers to it as Isaiah says or Isaiah wrote. And so we can go forward with great confidence that knowing this was Isaiah, writing in 700 B.C., and that many of these things that uh, were to take place would take place exactly as he said, because our God is a God who knows the future just as he knows today. And so we enter this brand new section of Isaiah in chapter 40 as it opens with the words, Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort my people. Well, there's some promises he gives to these people out in the future, these people who would need this in their time. And what are these promises? It begins in verse 2. And if comfort were a lotion, God here is rubbing it on extra thick. Because he begins verse 2 with, Speak kindly to Jerusalem. He's already said, Comfort, comfort my people. Now he's saying, Speak kindly to them. Literally, that is saying, Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And the idea here is to lay something tenderly close to the heart of another lay it tenderly close. The goal of this phrase, to speak to the heart of someone, is used in, in the Hebrew, and it has the idea and the goal of encouraging someone. It's meant to move them from their paralyzation, from their circumstances. It's meant to move them to take heart and believe again. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. That's what the people of Israel so desperately needed during their exile. They were worked. They were enslaved by Babylon to do what Babylon had them. They were miles away, many miles away from their own home. They were God's people. And like rain on parched ground, the promises of verse 2 bring new life to those hearing them in Babylon. Verse 2 begins. It says, "Uh, Speak kindly to her Jerusalem to call out that her warfare has ended. Now, if you notice, if you have the ESV or NASB, there's a little uh, footnote there by warfare. Uh, In NASB, it says times of hard service. And all commentators that I use basically agreed that hard service is a better uh, translation of this word here. So just make a little circle around that footnote. That's what I like to do when I come across one of these that is maybe a better translation. And it says that her times of service or times of slavery has ended. So what's being foretold, this bitter time of enslavement under the Babylonians, would come to an end. The time of service would be filled up, complete, like a balance book whose last space has just been used. There would be no more slavery for God's people. What a comfort to these who would be in exile. Secondly, we see that her iniquity has been removed. Captivity had struck Jerusalem because of their great and continual sins, just as many prophets had foretold would come upon them. Sin is the great downfall of every man and every nation, not just Israel. Israel, God's chosen nation, was not exempt from this. And they had been warned and warned again to turn from their sins and avoid God's wrath, but they would not repent. The fact that their iniquities... Would be removed implies an obvious prerequisite. They had come to the acknowledgement of their sin in their captivity and repented. God does not pardon the unrepentant of their sin. The Israelites, For the Israelites with a broken heart over their sin, God here now speaks tenderly to them. Your sins have been removed, he said. The full explanation of how that sin would be atoned for is not here given, just the promise of it. Isaiah saves that for Isaiah chapter 53 to spell out how that atonement would be made. This third line then says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now this is perhaps confusing, so let me try and shed a little bit of light on it, see if I can make help this make sense here. Now this word double does not mean that they received double what they deserved or more than what the people of Israel deserved. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't give people more punishment than they deserve. He gives them exactly what their punishment deserves. For a nation, they got what they deserved. And for us as individuals, if we go on sinning, never repenting, we get what we deserve, which is eternal punishment. And we get that unless Jesus Christ takes away the penalty of our sin. God is not unjust as to give out double sin. Sin gets exactly what is due it. And that's best the best way to see this word double. As the word basically exact. The Hebrew word double literally means double-sided. So it's like one side or two si- one side of the paper, or the other side of the paper. And it, it came to it came to be used as a way of saying double because as if you make an exact replica of something, you've got double of that. Um, it, it, but the word normally it was only referring to the singular second object, the exact replica of the first. So you've got an exact replica of of something. Or another way you could say it is that you've got a perfect match. A perfect match. And so this word here, conf- perhaps confusing when, when it's seen as double, it, it should actually be understood as a perfect match or exact for all our sins. Israel received a perfect matching retribution for their sins. They received 70 years of exile, which matched the 70 years of forgotten Sabbath rests, as explained in Second Chronicles 36.21. God dealt to the nation what the nation deserved. Now this is the immediate message of comfort to the Israelites in this verse. That your hard slavery is ended, your sins are removed, and God has given the matching retribution for your national sins. But, but what about for us? What about for you and me? What comfort do we find here? There is comfort in this verse for us, and it is in the character of our God. The character of our God is revealed here and that he is a merciful God. He is a God who forgives sins. God's mercy was shown to the nation of Israel by ending their physical slavery. God's mercy mercy is shown to you and me by ending our spiritual slavery. God's mercy is shown in that he removes our iniquities. God's mercy sent his son to the cross. God's mercy impaled him to the tree. God's mercy sent his blood flowing down as a red robe across his body. For in putting to death his perfect, holy son, God removes all the sins of those who come to him in faith. Isaiah explains this in, in, in chapter 3. And he says in Isaiah 53, in chapter in verses 5 and 6, he says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. This is looking forward to the servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how the atonement works. God has taken our sins and put them on His Son, Jesus Christ. There's comfort in the atoning blood of the cross. God's removed the sins of those who repent and turn to Him and He lays them on His Son. He's charged our wickedness to His Son's account and our massive credit card debt of sin that we could never pay off now has a zero balance. Fully removed fully atoned for, fully forgiven. And for us, the promise of comfort is this. God has atoned for sins. God has atoned for sins. His Son made atonement on that cross, and that could only happen if the second promise in our text would also come true. The second promise in our text is that God is coming to earth. God is coming to earth, verses 3 and 5. Now um, maybe some of you know the man named Eric Little. I've heard of him. He was uh, his story was classically retold in the movie Chariots of Fire. Now Little won the 400 meter race at Paris in 1924 Olympics, taking home gold. He was a man who became quickly accustomed to warm welcomes. At his big return at his return to Victoria Station in London, he thought there'd be a few people. There were thousands there to cheer him and his arrival. Six days after he won gold, he graduated. From college. He was studying and prepping while he was in Paris. He graduated from college, and at Edinburgh University, just six days later, people filled the hall. They couldn't even get enough tickets made to, for people to come and see Eric Little graduate. But Eric Little's greatest race would take place 20 years after gold. In August of 1944, while detained in a Japanese refugee camp in occupied China, Little would have a greater run. You see, Eric Little, after winning gold in Paris in 1924, forsook sports, forsook all that, to live a life as a missionary, to call people to Christ. He gave up these worldly things to go to China, to preach the gospel to the lost. And in the early years of World War II, when the Japanese had conquered mainland China, Little, along with many other um, Americans and Europeans, were rounded up and put in a, a, a camp. in a a containment center, essentially, and there were 1,800 foreigners detained in a camp roughly the size of two football fields. ton of people, little space. Well, in these difficult conditions, Little soon became the unassuming spiritual leader among the people. He calmed fearful hearts. He solved disputes, counseled anyone who asked, and preached regularly. He was, for all intents and purposes, a leader of the refugees, spiritually, mentally, and in his service. Everyone looked to him with the greatest of respect. But in that malnourished camp, an unknown brain tumor started to wear down Eric's body, started to wear him out. And though, as this tumor took its toll on his body, still unknown to him and others, though gruesomely exhausted, when asked to run in a camp race, Eric Liddell could not say no. Not because he wanted to relive his old glory days, but because he knew the people needed something to bring them cheer and hope and encouragement. So he did it for them. Elated that Eric would be running the race, the people in the camp cleared the track. They cleared the race. It would wind around two sets of buildings and up a narrow lane sidelined with trees. They cleared and flattened the path. This race was not to be obstructed nor to be missed. Eric Little was going to run in our camp. They loved him, not for his gold medal, though they knew he had it. They loved him for who he had become to them. The course was cleaned and cleared for the dying feet of the world-renowned flying Scotsman. And Eric ran with all his heart. It would be his final race. At 45 and, and half dead, it should have been an easy win for all the spry youngsters competing against him. But Eric beat them all, except for one. Except for one. And he brought great joy and excitement to this destitute people. And he would later enter glory just a few months later this having been his last race. Now, would you clear the path for the greatest runner to ever live? Would you clear his path so he could run one more time? I'm sure you would. But would you also clear the path for the arrival of God? That's the command here, to clear the path for the arrival of God. We come to verse 3. We see in the remainder of our passage in 3 through 11 that we're moving into the future, beyond Isaiah, beyond the exiles. The statements, they don't have a clear time frame within them, nor do they even have a stated speaker. In this one, it's just a voice. But the voice and even the time period are less important than the message that's highlighted here. It's the message. And the message is clear. God is coming to earth. Look with me at verses 3 and 5 as I reread them. This is a great passage Verses 3 and 5. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's comfort to be found here if you are part of God's people. Think about it from an Old Testament uh, Jew's perspective. Now, God's coming to Earth. He's literally going to physically break into human history. Now, the, the Jews wouldn't understand this at first because God to them He is somebody who cannot be seen. You cannot make an image. You cannot make an idol. God, you know the other gods had idols, they had images, but now God's going to come to Earth. How on how on Earth is that going to work? How's that going to happen? The God of all creation is now telling us He's coming. Clear the way. God's earthly presence will no longer be limited to Mount Sinai or a traveling cloud of fire or even the Holy of Holies in the temple. He will come and walk on earth. He will move about over land like a human being. And as we know, it's because he came as a human being. He came as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The voice in verse 3 is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he says this quite clearly. John one twenty one, John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's me, I'm John, that's me. In fact, this was John's message. In all four gospel accounts, this passage is quoted along with John and the coming of the Messiah. All four of them quote this prophecy. It was so important to each of them in recognizing God is coming to earth. God is coming. John is the forerunner, making announcing it that he is coming. And so we have Jesus Christ coming to earth, clear the way for him. However, it's interesting to note that all four of them who quote this don't quote the first line in verse 5. Luke himself actually quotes into verse 5, but he skips the first line. The first line of verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now that is skipped. By Luke. Why? It's because the full glory of the Lord has not yet come. God's salvation, which was glorious, has come. It has come. But his full glory is being saved for his second coming, when he will shine like the sun, and all earth will see him. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. Everyone will see the fullness of God's glory at his second coming. Now God has come to earth, and he will come again. He came the first time to save, the second time to judge. Is your heart ready? Have you prepared your heart and cleared away all the sin that's blocking God's pathway to you? A Sunday school teacher once asked her class, What does repent mean? A little boy raised his hand. It means to be sorry for your sins, he said. A little girl's hand then followed. Teacher, teacher, it means to be so sorry for your sin that you quit doing your sins. Isn't that right? That's repentance, to be so sorry for your sins that you quit doing them. Have you done that? Repent today. Clear the path to your heart for God. Now, if God is your Savior, if you have repented, if you're living a life of repentance, take comfort. He has come and will soon come back again to reign over us all. Evil will be removed. God and all his goodness will reign. What a joy, what peace, what bliss we will experience when Christ comes back. We look forward to that. We can know this promise of his coming is sure and fixed in the mind of God because God has also promised us that his promises stand forever. That's our third promise today, that God's promises stand forever. Verses 6 through 8. And we have another voice here. This one says, Call out in verse 6. The voice says, Call out. And each of these, these strophes, each of these sections that I've broken down today, each have a voice telling us to call. And it's, we've got four voices here saying, Call out. And again, it's, it's not the messenger that's important, but the message. The messenger's not even given here, it's all about the message. Look at what this message is. Let me read again verses 6 through 8. The the message is thus. The voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? And here's the message. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, I personally, personally like grass. I like the smell of it after it's been cut. I actually even like mowing my yard. You might think I'm crazy, but perhaps I'm biased towards grass because I like playing golf, and that might have some influence on me. I once played an entire 18 holes of golf at Portland Golf Club barefoot just to enjoy the feeling of grass underneath my toes for an entire day. Now, grass is not a bad thing. And in fact, if you're a farm animal, it's a very good thing So comparing all flesh to grass, this is not a derogatory name-calling. God's not calling us names here. It's simply a statement of comparison. And in fact, there's something nice said about humanity. Look at the end of verse 6. End of verse 6, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Something nice. Now the word loveliness here in Hebrew, maybe beauty if you have ESV, that's the Hebrew word chesed chesed. And chesed is often translated when used of God as loving kindness. Loving kindness. It's essentially the best character trait that a person can possibly possess. It is the best of the best, the best character trait. And it is used of God over and over again. Now, Now, many translations, including mine, the NASB and the ESV, they they want they translate this as like the appearance of all flesh like it's like it's beautiful or it looks lovely, uh, but that's an ex- extremely rare and almost altogether non-existent use of the Hebrew term. And so, it's better to look at this as a character quality, the character quality of them. All flesh is as grass, and the loving kindness of the flesh, the, referring to the flesh, is like the flower of the field. Now this seems to be recognizing that man can be nice. I thought we always looked at man as sinners. Well, man can be nice sometimes, right? Even unsaved parents love their children. They often love their spouses. They they usually love their pets and treat them kindly and do nice things. And so while humanity is sinful in nature and wicked in essence, there can be bright spots. I, I know a number of unsafe people who outwardly look nicer sometimes than Christians I know. People can have bright spots in their character. And so the Bible compares these bright spots to the flower of the field, like a wildflower, often beautiful, just like the acts of loving kindness that humans sometimes show. We're being compared here. Grass and flowers sometimes have major shortcomings. When my wife and I bought our house in June, we had a nice lush green grass in our front yard and many flowers. It was beautiful. But through my own neglect of not watering, because I'm like, I live in Washington. What do you water your grass for? I came from California. Our front lawn died. And not only died, but a lot of it disappeared. Like there's still brown spots in our front lawn. It's kind of embarrassing. And the flowers all are gone. They'll hopefully come back. Hopefully we didn't destroy them forever. But that's what happens to grass and flowers. They die. They wither away. It's not random it's not rare, it's characteristic of grass and flowers to die. And all it takes, verse 7, is that the breath of the Lord would blow upon it. The breath of the Lord, the wind of the Lord perhaps. And perhaps in mind here is this, this thing that this wind that would come upon the, the nation of Israel, many uh, pretty often in May, there's this wind called the Hampcene wind. And it comes in, in, in the month of May. It's hot, dry, and comes from the east, and it can turn their countryside from green to brown in less than 48 hours. just kills the grass just like that, this big hot wind. And it happens a lot in Southern California too, where I went to seminary. We'd have nice green hills, and we'd go to school the next day, and they'd be brown. Just overnight, grass can die. That it, it, this is us. End of verse 7 makes that very clear. Surely the people are grass. We die. We die easily. The end of the verse reaffirms that. When it says that I just mentioned, surely the people are grass. Last time I checked, 10 out of 10 people still die. And the source of death here is interesting. It's God. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it. One commentator gave this quote. He said, God is the giver of life and God is the giver of death. Just yesterday at men's meeting, Doug Nichols uh, made a great comment regarding, regarding uh, this, uh, this idea, and it comes from Revelation 1, where the Apostle John sees the grand vision of the glorified Christ, and he's so terrified, he's thinking he will die because he has seen God face to face. Nobody can see God and live. And yet Jesus comes up to him, and as Doug pointed out, lays his hand on him, and tells John a comforting word, I have the keys of death. I have the keys of death. Death comes when I choose, when I turn the key. Nobody else gets to decide. You will not die a day sooner or a day later than Jesus has determined for you. It could be tonight, could be tomorrow, could be in 50 years. So, what do we learn from this? For one, sober up. You're going to die. Get your life figured out. Stop living for yourself, put away your sin. Live for God and his glory. And two, the contrast in verse 8 brings us a comforting promise. The word of our God stands forever. It's contrast. We wither and fade. Even our bright spots wither and fade away and die. But God's word stands forever. Everything God has said and communicated to man will endure forever. Everything he has said. And the word stand or endure, it doesn't just mean endure, but it also carries the idea of confirmed or ratified or established. God's word are true and established as fact forever. Unchanging. Friends, there are so many great promises from God to us. We've seen a couple already. We'll see one more in a moment. And these promises, all of them are never going away. They are eternal. They are for us. They're not just blessings for Isaiah and Israel. They're blessings for the British and for the Americans. They're blessings for us here at Living Hope Bible Church. They are eternal blessings for all God's people. God's word stands strong and fast forever. Every man, even at his best, fades away. But God and his promises will never fail. The Babylonian Empire in the day of Israel would fall. The Roman Empire of Jesus' day would fall. And someday the American Empire that we now live in will fall. But God's Word stands forever. Let this bring you comfort as you toil about in this life. Just as it comforted the writer of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 49 and 50 gives this great little message. The psalmist cries out, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. God's promises give us life. Find comfort in that today. And we have one more promise now to to see. And this is the greatest and most comforting promise of them all, in my personal opinion. This is my favorite of all. I love this little section here, especially verse 11. And this is promise number four. God is a good shepherd. God is a good shepherd. So true. Now as we as we consider this promise, we're getting even further into the future. The prophecies cascade outward into the future. verse two looks forward to the captivity. verses three and four look to Christ in his first coming verses five and now nine through 11 look to Christ in his second coming. They describe when Christ will return again to rule on earth and that is quite clear. Look at how this is put to God's people. Look in verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. It's called good news. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew, um, translated in like 200 years before Jesus Christ was even born, they translated this word, bearer of good news, as euangelion, which is the same word we translate as gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It is the good news that we need to proclaim, or excuse me, that Zion needs to go and proclaim. Here we finally have um, a herald designated. It's Zion, Jerusalem. Lift up your voice. Be the bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Uh, Obviously, it's not the city itself. Cities can't do it, but it's the redeemed in the city. Those in the city, be the bearer of good news. Spread the news to your sister cities. Spread the news to your brothers and sisters who worship God. Great news has come upon you. The best news, the gospel news has come to you. Three times Zion is told to proclaim it. Lift up your voice. Lift it up. Say it. Say what? Here is your God. Here he is. He comes. He comes to the earth. This is yet future to us, but oh, how we long for it. We ought to long for the return and reign of God. Now, think with me for a second. I know this this verse is a reference to the second coming of Christ, as the next verses make very clear. But we still have a message to proclaim. God has come to us, verse 3 and 4. This is good news. He came in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived for you and me, taking on our sickness and sorrow. He died for you and me, taking on our sin and shame we must call it out like Zion to our brothers and sisters, our friends and neighbors. Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, get up on a high mountain and proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ. Lift your voice with this good news. Proclaim repentance from sin and faith in the only Savior of the world. Proclaim the salvation of God for He has come and He is coming again. God has come. He has come and he is coming again he's come to save he comes again in verse 10 with might and a ruling arm and that's a very polite way to say he's coming to rule the earth and judge the wicked revelation revelation 19 spells that out very clearly as does isaiah 66 and isaiah 66 in verses 13 to 16 help a little bit more explain and unpack Unpack a little bit of the, the idea the idea here in verse ten, so let me read Isaiah sixty six, thirteen to sixteen. It says this As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants but he will be indignant toward his enemies. Now here comes the might and the ruling arm in verse 10 that speaks of, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. That's the might in the arm verse 10 is talking about. Friends, if you're of God, God's judgment on the wicked is, is a good thing for us. Think of a Wild West town. The townspeople are glad when there's a good sheriff putting to rest the wickedness of the outlaws. It's the outlaws and the bandits are who are the ones upset, not the righteous townspeople. God is the good sheriff coming to make things right, and so we rejoice. But this passage sure isn't comforting for those who are not God's own, and it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be horrific and terrifying. When we meet God, whether in our death or if He should return in our lifetime, we will receive one of two verdicts. A terrifying guilty verdict followed by all the horrors of hell or a comforting redeemed verdict and all the joys of heaven. Either the greatest pain or the greatest comfort. If you're not sure of your destination or you already know and feel God's judgment is coming upon you, don't delay. Give your life to God. Give it to Him even today. Be saved by the blood of Jesus from the penalty of your sins. Enter into comfort of eternal life in Christ. When Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before His throne. This is so comforting and rewarding to know that you are in Christ. And verse 11 gives the most beautiful illustration, the most beautiful illustration. Look at verse 11 with me one more time. It says, "Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes." Friends, there's so much comfort here. Like a shepherd, God will tend his flock. Christians, that's us. He, in his arm, he will gather his lambs. That same arm that came to rule and conquer in verse 10, in might now comes and tenderly hugs and holds his precious sheep, his precious, precious redeemed people. He will carry them in his bosom, close to his chest, that means next to his heart. Sometimes Oliver, my son, he's only two months old, he'll cry unconsolably when I cuddle him up close, where he can hear my beating heart, it always calms him down. It's a place of tender affection, of warmth, solace, trust, and care. Friends, God will carry you there. God will carry you there. And he will gently lead the nursing youth. These are the defenseless, in need of great help. He'll gently lead them. The Hebrew word lead, whenever it's used in conjunction with sheep, always has in mind a leading to water and a leading to rest. God will lead you to the eternal sustenance you need and to an eternal rest. He will care for you and watch over you like the good shepherd that he is. Such great comfort here in these words. Such an amazing promise that we can grasp and hold as a comfort from God. Now I want to close by reading two passages of scripture. The first one's a little bit longer. It's going to be from Ezekiel 34 and it pulls from a number of verses skipping a couple, but so just follow along with me as I read. The first one is it from Ezekiel 34. He says this, starting in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Verse 23 Now, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. As for you, my sheep, The sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Wow. The next passage is John 10, verse 11 and then 14 through 16. And these are the red letters, the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is the Good Shepherd. He tenderly cares for you, even today, close to his bosom. If the circumstances of your life have you down today, or the the weight of sin from this world has you down, look to the Good Shepherd. Look to Christ. Set your eyes on the Savior, Jesus Christ. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. What a promise. What a comfort. Are you not yet one of his sheep? Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. Forsake your wicked ways. Enter into His sheepfold. The door is open for you today. It may not be tomorrow. You don't know if you have a tomorrow. Hear His voice calling out for you today. See the love of the Savior displayed and give your life to Him. Give your life to Him. Friends, because God has atoned for sin and become your shepherd, you may find comfort in him what a great promise let us pray father thank you for the comfort of your word not only in this passage but the whole thing lord brings so much peace to us as we look to you and we know about you god i, I pray for the salvation of every lost soul in this room god you know who's who's that who's those are you know who those people are lord I just pray that you would use this as, as a seed, as water among on their souls, Lord, to bring them to knowledge of you. God, convict them of sin. Show them their need for a savior. May you be real to them even this morning and bring salvation to this place, O oh Lord. God, I do pray for this flock, that you would bring comfort to them, for those going through difficulties, Lord, trying times, that you would comfort them through your son, through the shepherd, through these great promises, Lord, of care and compassion. God, we thank you for this promise, for this, this incredible promise you've given us. And we know they're a trustworthy, God, because you do not lie. You do not rescind what you've sent forth. God, your promise will always, be, will always be true. God, we thank you. We bless you for being such a good and kind and merciful Savior. And we look to you this day. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.